welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 19. Last week, I finally began the in-depth dive into the history of ancient Egypt, covering the reign of the legendary Pharaoh Menes, and then working through what is assumed to be the first real Pharaoh, Narmer. This week, I'm starting with Narmer's son and successor, Hor-Aha, and talking through the history of the few pharaohs that came after him. So let's get started. Hor-Aha, probably the son of Narmer and his wife, Nethotep, is usually considered the second pharaoh of the first dynasty of Egypt. Some researchers consider him the first pharaoh, but only because they think he may be the same person as Narmer. This theory isn't the most widely believed, as most of the historical evidence from the period points to Narmer as the pharaoh who first unified Egypt, and to Hor-Aha as his son and heir. Hor-Aha's reign probably began around the 32nd century BC, and lasted through the 31st. It's thought that his name was derived from their god Horus, therefore showing his relationship to the divine. His full name translates to Horus the Fighter, and Manetho referred to him as Anthotis. Hor-Aha seems to have been relatively active in the forming of their religion. Several tablets from his reign indicate that he visited the shrine of the goddess Neith. This is the same goddess associated with his mother. Her, meaning the goddess's, shrine was located northeast of the Nile Delta at Sais. Also, the first known depiction of the sacred Hinu bark of the god Sikur was found engraved on a tablet dating from his reign. The Hinu bark was a depiction of a boat or a sled used to transport the divine. As would seem rather normal, his mother, Queen Nethotop, died during his reign. Being both loyal son and pharaoh, he arranged for her burial in a magnificent mustaba. This tomb would lay undisturbed, well, except for thousands of years of grave robbers. Anyway, it was undisturbed until it was discovered in 1897 by a French archaeologist. Now, few artifacts remain from Hor-Aha's reign. Well, except for a detailed copper axe head, a few pottery fragments, an ivory box, and a few inscribed white marbles. Scant evidence, indeed. Like I alluded to in the last episode, it was during Hor-Aha's reign that the trade with the Southern Levant seems to have declined after it reached a peak when his father was on the throne. In fact, indifferent from his father, Norma, for Hor-Aha, there are few records of him outside of the Nile Valley, but pottery fragments from an Egyptian outpost at En Basor, in Gaza, in the Levant, suggests that it was active during Hor-Aha's reign. Other Egyptian settlements, such as Byblos, which is on the coast of Lebanon, are known to have been active at the time as well. Also, Hor-Aha's tomb yielded pottery fragments that probably originated in the southern Levant. So maybe the best way to characterize it is that few records outside of Egypt have been uncovered so far. Hor-Aha apparently had several wives, but the primary one seems to have been Benarib. Another wife, Kenthap, was the mother to his heir, Dejer. 
Horaha is buried in the same tomb complex as his predecessors in armor, at Abydus. The tombs do show one interesting piece of architectural history. They tended to be built in large complexes with smaller rooms, and the rooms are thought to be of a distinctly smaller size since the only way to support a larger ceiling was with timber, and none was available locally and had to be imported from Lebanon, Lebanese cedar. Another interesting funeral practice was that this is apparently the first instance where members of the royal household were buried with the pharaoh, and they all apparently died at the same time. What's unknown is if they were killed or committed suicide. Among these buried were servants, dwarves, women, and their pet dogs, and even a group of young lions, probably the now extinct Barbary lion. All told, there were 36 additional bodies discovered, and this number doesn't include the animals, which of course couldn't have committed suicide, so they were sacrificed. Taking the throne after Hor-Aha and continuing the reign in Memphis was his son Dezer. He lived and ruled around 3000 BC and sat on the throne for somewhere between 41 and 57 years. So, why the discrepancy? Manetho wrote it was 57 years, but an uncovered artifact, the Palmero Stone, which states to soon after his reign, claims his rule was for, quoting, 41 complete and partial years, whatever that means. And as ambiguous as that is, it doesn't mean 57 years, of course. Apparently, he was a youth when he ascended to the throne as during the early years of his pharaohship, he was under the regency of Nehotep. There are several artifacts that demonstrate that he was the ruler, but many of these are written in a very early form of hieroglyphs, and this early form of the language is not completely understood and is still waiting on its Rosetta Stone to allow decipherment. What is understood from the text isn't just that he was the ruler, but also there were religious human sacrifices. And this shouldn't be a surprise, just think back to the findings in his father's tomb. An ivory tablet from Abydus mentions that Dezer visited Butu and Sais, both apparently located in the Nile Delta. In one of his years, there was apparently a conflict with a place known as Setjet. To be specific, the text translates to the year of the smiting of the land of Setjet. Setjet is thought to be in Sinai, or perhaps beyond, and smiting, while illustrative, certainly couldn't have been pleasant. Manetho claimed that Athotis, who may have been one and the same as Dezer, wrote a tome on anatomy that still existed at the time Manetho wrote his own work, over 2,000 years later. If true, Dezer would have had to have been well-educated, perhaps a polymath. It's thought that he had at least five wives. I'll spare you their names. One of them, though, may have been married to a later pharaoh, after Dezer's death. Like his father, Dezer was buried at Abydus, and, also like dear old dead dad, his tomb contained the remains of other people, again possibly associated with his royal court. 318 other people. Long after his death, 
Some in Egypt thought his tomb was that of Osiris, of course after he was murdered by Set. Chaos reigned. Therefore, his tomb was well revered in the ancient Egyptian religion. What was thought to be either his or his wife's mummified arm was discovered by Flinders Petrie, the English archaeologist I mentioned in the last episode. Dejer may have been the father of Myrnieth, who herself was the wife of Dejet, who would succeed Dejer. Oh, and Dejet was the son of Dejer. Did you get that? Dejer's son married Dejer's daughter. The son would become Pharaoh and the daughter queen. So, of course, next was Dejet, and if you're counting, he was the fourth Pharaoh of the first dynasty, and his name referred to a snake or serpent, maybe something as specific as a cobra. The title is deduced from a stele found in his tomb. The specific stele was a snake topped by a falcon. The falcon presumed to represent the god Horus. Like I mentioned a minute ago, his wife was also his sister, or maybe his half-sister, and after his death, she may have ruled the land as Pharaoh. More on that in a bit. There isn't really much known about Dijet. We're unsure of how long he ruled. Obviously, he was married, but to how many wives? Who knows? He did have a son, Den. There are a few artifacts that mention his reign. One is an ivory label that indicates there was one Saker festival while he ruled. So, given the assumed frequency of these festivals, he could have ruled for as long as 10 years. He wasn't mentioned on the Palmyra Stone, but this isn't terribly unusual, especially if nothing of note occurred during his reign. There is evidence of trade with groups in the Levant, and most of this evidence is in the form of, you guessed it, pottery fragments. Like his predecessors, Dijet's tomb is located in Abydus, and he was also buried with presumed members of his royal court, in his case, 174 people. And regarding these people, it's currently thought that they were sacrificed at the time of his death so that they could serve him in the afterlife. A few other artifacts were recovered in the tomb, including an ivory comb emblazoned with his name. The comb can be found today in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. It's the earliest known representation of the heavens embodied by the outspread wings of a falcon. Copper tools and pottery, of course, were found in the tomb. Then, something strange. It appears that his tomb was burned after he was buried, maybe intentionally. Similar scorch marks appear on other, lesser tombs. They were restored, probably as a result of their association with the cult of Osiris. What Dijet is mostly known for is something different the well-preserved steles found in his tomb. They indicate that the artistic style, one that Egypt would become known for, was fully developed by the time of his death. The stele were discovered in 1904 by a French archaeologist, and, as you would expect, they are displayed at the Louvre. So, about his sister-wife, Myrnieth. She may have been the ruler of Egypt in her own right, maybe after his presumed premature death. This thought is based on several artifacts, believed to be official records from the time. If true, she may have been the first, 
Our second, if you count Neithhotep, who may have served as regent for Horaha upon Narmer's death. Anyway, she may have been the first female pharaoh and the earliest ruling queen in recorded history. Her rule would have occurred sometime around 2950 BC and would have lasted for an unknown period. Merniath is understood to have become ruler upon the death of Dijet, but she may have been queen outright or served as regent until her son Din became old enough to rule himself. Adding further confusion is that her name was written on a Nakata cylinder seal inside a Sarek, and this stylization was only reserved for kings. The most persuasive evidence that Marineth was ruler of Egypt can be found in her tomb. In 1900, Flinders Petrie, the English Egyptologist, discovered Marineth's tomb and at first, because of its nature, believed it belonged to a previously unknown pharaoh. The tomb was excavated and contained a large underground chamber lined with mud bricks and was surrounded by rows of buried servants. They too were probably sacrificed to serve her in the afterlife. Inside her tomb, archaeologists found what is known as a solar boat, which certainly warrants an explanation. And don't think of it with our current definition of the word solar. It was a vessel, a boat, meant to carry the deceased pharaoh across the sky accompanying Ra on his daily journey. These boats, ships, vessels, barges, whatever, were typically about 75 feet or 23 meters long, had wooden hulls, and large boulders presumed to be used as anchors. They are considered the oldest known specimens of boats built from wooden planks and would continue to be buried with pharaohs well past the construction of the Great Pyramids at Giza. Merniet too was buried at Abydus and is the only female buried among male rulers, with a tomb that is essentially the same size. Her name is on the Palmero stone and it also appears on a seal found in the tomb of her son, Den. This seal includes Merenith on a list of the first dynasty kings, where she is the only woman present. But while the men are given the title Horus, she has the title King's Mother. Finally, her name cannot be found on a king list that dates to the later New Kingdom, and a cylinder seal containing a list of the pharaohs of the first dynasty who ruled shortly after her and it does not mention her reign. So, who knows? Of course, after Marineth was her son, Din, unlike several of his predecessors, there is a great deal of archaeological evidence of his rule. Like his great-something grandfather, he is thought to have brought prosperity to the country. Din was the first pharaoh to use the title King of Lower and Upper Egypt, Manetho claimed he reigned for 20 years, but the Palmero stone indicates it was 42 years. The Turin king list is damaged in the section that would contain references to his rule. So, no joy there. His name can be found in many documents and cylinder seals, so at least the problem of attestation seen with many of his predecessors doesn't exist. There is a document from much later that refers to him, 
It's known as the Medical Papyrus of Berlin and dates to the reign of Ramses, so between 1300 and 1000 BC. Keep these dates in mind for a minute. The papyrus provides several methods of treatment and therapies for different diseases and ailments, and a few of these methods are mentioned as having originated during the reign of Din. A bit related, there is a stele that refers to Din's daughter suffering from an unknown disease. Also during his reign, there is evidence of a yet-to-be-determined epidemic that afflicted Egypt. And, if the reference to his reign is authentic, the medical treatments would have been in use during the life and times of Joseph and Moses, and the 400 or so years in between, when the Israelites were living in Egyptian exile. On the other hand, there is the thought that the mention of Din may have been merely placed in the document to give them some sort of credence and authority. With that disclaimer out of the way, what did the papyri say? As with most ancient Egyptian medical texts, they dealt with the usual problems of the day. Ailments, diseases, the structure of the body, and the supposed remedies used to heal these conditions. Also, gynecology, muscles, tendons, the diseases of children, and it went into great detail. It contained numerous prescriptions for dealing with pain reduction. Also, labor and childbirth, how to protect newborns, methods to predict infant survival, and even ways to forecast a fetus's gender. It contained advice on contraception. It was written in hieroglyphs, which was unusual, since most of the medical texts were written in hieratic. But there's something that's even more interesting, especially in the context of this podcast. One of the papyri may provide information about the eruption of Santorini, a Greek volcano that is thought to have erupted sometime around 1600 BC. Evidence pointing to this date has been found in Greenland ice core samples, European tree rings, Chinese historical records, and various other places. But, while all of these point to a volcano, there are some who believe it may have been located elsewhere, like in Alaska. As far as Egypt is concerned, the text of the stele dating to Amos I mentions short-term climatic changes thought to have been caused by an eruption. This isn't without issues, though, as Amos is thought to have ruled just over 100 years later than the Greek eruption but the eruption could have occurred during the Second Intermediate Period, and since it was an intermediate period, there were fewer written records and more general disorder. On the papyrus and other medical papyri are treatments for burns caused by particulate and dissolved acids, similar to what may have been seen with volcanic fallout. And thinking back to the plagues God sent to Egypt, the six was boils, potentially caused by ash, fiery hell, potentially volcanic debris, the ninth darkness, which could easily be the result of an atmospheric ash plume, and all the others, especially those relating to the deaths of animals, can potentially be attributed to an eruption. There's even speculation that the Red Sea, or the Sea of Reeds, could have been made shallower due to the effects of an impending tsunami. And a bit theological, 
but if God could create the heavens and earth in less than six days, he can easily cause the volcano to erupt. There's another stele from the era that refers to the Pharaoh overcoming the powers of chaos and darkness. Hmm. Back to the reign of Din. Din's name is thought to translate to, He who brings the water. At birth, he was named Casti, which translates to, He of the two deserts. I only mention his birth name because I like saying it. Casti. Casti. You should try saying it sometime. Moving along. Apparently, Din had several wives. No great surprise there. And these wives gave him several sons and daughters, including the future pharaoh Anjib and Simerket. I'll get to the both of them in the next episode. Archaeological records indicate that Din ascended to the throne at a young age, and his mother, Merneith served as his regent for several years. During his reign, there was an important invention, or perhaps it was a discovery. Either way, for the first time in Egypt, there was a defined numbering system. At least it was the first time it was recorded in written records with hieroglyphs. Prior to this, your events were depicted in signs and miniatures, but not numbers. Beginning in his reign, Egyptians used numbering hieroglyphs for many purposes, including calculating taxes and for noting their annual occasions. Think about how our world would be different without written numbers. Din was also depicted in records found in Sinai, indicating an Egyptian presence there. There is an artifact that shows the first complete depiction of an Egyptian king with a Namis headdress. You know what this is. The striped cloth, usually navy blue and gold stripes, pulled tight across the forehead and flowing more loosely down the back and sometimes over the shoulders. In this depiction, he's shown in a gesture that's interpreted as him smiting the enemy. It seems the ancient Egyptians had a penchant for smiting. And the smiting gesture? Well, in one hand, Din holds a smashing scepter while the other hand grabs his enemy by the hair. And this enemy? He has dreadlocks and a conic beard, which is thought to indicate that he's from the east, perhaps the Levant, or a bit further away on the Asian continent. The hieroglyphs in the drawing read, First Smiting of the East. There's that word again. The historical thinking is that Din sent his army to the Sinai Peninsula, and the eastern desert a number of times, maybe to take on the Luntzhu, aka the people with the hunting bows. These folks are thought to have been nomadic and were apparently frequent flus of the Egyptians, who often caused problems, in need of a good smiting. They were mentioned in a later Sinai rock inscription written during the reign of a not-so-much-later successor to Din. There are a few other fun things that were recorded during his reign. At least three cattle censuses, the building of canals, construction of fortresses, the founding and destruction of the city of Vurka, both in the same year, the first counting of gold. I'm not sure what that really means. Maybe an accounting of the royal treasury and a royal hippopotamus hunt. Oh, and the smiting of the Setjet people the Lutnju people, 
and the Tijiza people, all of unknown origin. Maybe they were all so smitten that they were erased from the historic record. And yes, that is the proper use of the word smitten. Makes you rethink a few things, doesn't it? As for his tomb, and why not, it's a tradition. Like his predecessors, it's located at Abydus. The floor of the tomb is made of red and black granite. Stone probably gathered near Aswan. So what's significant about this? Well, it was the first large-scale use of the material in construction, at least in Egypt. Prior to his tomb, similar tombs used mostly mud brick. It's also the first tomb in Egypt with a staircase. In the tomb is a stele of a dwarf named Sir Impu. Stele for lower members of the court are rather rare, so he must have been held in high regard. Inside was the oldest confirmed king list. The tomb was designed to keep grave robbers out, obviously indicating the problem existed at the time. Finally, his tomb is surrounded by the graves of 136 servants, help for the afterlife. And, unlike his predecessors, there's indications of how these people met their end. They were strangled. Such a lovely moment in history. And that's probably a good stopping point for this episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with his successor sons. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes, or wherever you receive the podcast from, and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. And if you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss any. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.